Well, I want to begin our, uh, our sermon this morning by telling you about three different people. The first one comes from the 18th century, from a man who penned what is likely the most famous hymn in all of history. You probably know these words. They go like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That hymn was written by John Newton. But did you know that before Newton became a pastor and this great prolific hymn writer, that he spent his, the early part of his adult life as a slave trader, an African slave trader. And after um, his conversion to Christianity, he began to become increasingly uh, more disgusted with the slave trade and his role in it. And as the word and, and, and the Lord began to form and grip his heart, he eventually said, I, I can't do it anymore. And he became a pastor. And he actually began to work with uh, William Wilberforce to help end slavery in Britain. I want you to keep him in mind as we move and jump across the pond to America. Fast forward now to the 1960s in the middle of the Watergate scandal. There was a man by the name of Chuck Colson who uh, had graduated from George Washington University Law School. He was a captain in the U.S. Marines, and he built this lucrative law firm. And by the age of 37, was the top White House legal uh, uh, aide for Richard Nixon. And he was known as the hatchet man because he was one of those guys that would do whatever it took to get the job done. He was the first Watergate figure to become an incarcerated felon. And kind of famously, right before he went to prison, he uh, was converted to Christianity. He gave um, his life to Christ, and uh, parole boards often thought, oh, that's pretty convenient, you know, become a Christian and get reformed right before going into prison. But, just be- but, but, but his life told a different story. And after he served his time and got out of prison, he promised his fellow inmates that he would never forget them, and he dedicated the rest of his life to helping prisoners and their families. He, he worked hard with politicians and, and, and our, in our legal uh, system to reform prison conditions and help inmates get their life back together after they got out of prison. Now keep him in mind next to John Newton. And finally, let's head over to Taiwan, the year is 2010, and we meet a man named Huang Young Fu, an 86 years old at the time, and he was facing a dilemma. He's the last remaining resident of a small military settlement, and the Taiwanese government wants to um, demolish it, destroy it, and build up some more modern uh, apartment complexes. Um, all the residents have taken the money and, and gone, and he was offered the same kind of money as well. But he had a very hard time leaving uh, his home of the last 40 years. So instead of leaving, he picked up a paintbrush, and he literally started painting every surface of the village, not with like bare paint and making it renovated and nice. He, he really saw the village as his canvas, as his uh, a landscape for, for his artwork. And he paints in these beautiful colors, as you can see, with these uh, uh, beautiful images. And news began to spread. And people started coming and visiting this rainbow village. People started sending money. People were crowdsourcing fundraising campaigns to help this man paint the village. Eventually, the government decided to save the villi- the, this village um, and all the buildings. And today, over one million people a year come and visit this once dilapidated village that nobody had ever heard of 10 years ago. Now, what do all of these stories 
have in common? What ties them all together? See, these are all second chance stories. People or places that had a a, a different beginning and then were given a second chance. You think about John Newton, who was a slave trader turned abolitionist. You think about Chuck Colson, who was a corrupt politician's lawyer turned into a prison minister. And you think about a dilapidated village headed for demolition that turns into a beautiful work of art visited by over a million people a year. And we love second chance stories. I mean, there were hundreds and thousands that I could have chosen from this morning. Stories where someone or something is given a second chance to maybe right or wrong, turn their life around, or face impossible odds. And we personally know we love second chance stories because we know without second chances personally, we couldn't keep our jobs. We wouldn't have meaningful relationships. Simply put, without second chances, we couldn't make it through life. Imagine your life if you were never given a second chance. Second chances are made possible because of mercy. Someone decides to restore. Someone decides to redeem. Someone decides to relent. See, without mercy, second chances wouldn't be possible. Today's passage in Jonah is all about second chances We see a reluctant prophet and a rebellious people who are both shown mercy from God and given a second chance. And see, God is a God of second chances because he is fundamentally, in his character, a God of mercy. And as we look at Jonah chapter 3, we're going to learn that God's mercy is the kind that restores. We're also going to see that God's mercy is the kind that redeems. We're also finally going to see that God's mercy is the kind that relents. So let's look at verse 1 together to see how God's mercy restores. This is Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us in our series in Jonah, you'll realize that Jonah chapter 3 sounds a whole lot like Jonah chapter 1. The start is almost identical. It's almost verbatim in the Hebrew. And it's this author's way of kind of rewinding the story and starting over. And it's here that we learn about the character of God. It's here that we get the first glimpses that God is a God of second chances, See, he often, if you followed him any length of time in your life, realize he's not really just the God of second chances, right? He's the God of chance after chance at the chance to the point that we simply lose track of how many times that God has given us another chance. See, God, see Jonah in chapter one has fled from the Lord. The word came to him and he ran. He said, I'm out on the prophet business. I want nothing to do with it. And he tried to run away from God. And we know from the story that God sends a fury after him to bring him back. See, God could have left Jonah alone. It could have said that Jonah ran from the Lord and God went and found himself another prophet right? It probably would have saved God a whole lot of headaches, saved him a whole lot of time just to find someone who'd be willing to trust him and do what he's asked him to do. But see, God is a God of mercy, and his mercy is the kind that restores. So he goes after Jonah to bring him back. But notice what this passage tells us. He doesn't just bring Jonah back and say, hey, listen, 
That message I gave you earlier, that job I had for you, don't worry about it. We got, we got something else for you. No. What does he do? He brings him right back to the place of his disobedience. See, with God, you don't get to do this. Hey, God, let's just agree to disagree, right? Hey, God, I know um, I'd love for us to just move past this, and we've got these irreconcilable differences. If we could just table those, put a pin on it, and move on. That's not how it works with God. He is always right. For Jonah to move forward, he's got to go back to the place of his stubbornness, confront his hardened heart, repent of his unbelief, and say yes to God. So God takes him back to that place where he previously said no, but this time Jonah says yes. We remember that uh, from last week that God pursued Jonah with what Pastor Tim Keller called severe mercy, right? At the time, it didn't look like mercy. At the time, it looked like punishment. But what we come to find out is that God's coming after him is restorative, not punitive. See, his mercy, his severe mercy was meant for his restoration, not retribution, for his transformation, not his annihilation. See, he's not out to prove a point. Sinclair Ferguson uh, says it well. He's a Scottish pastor I can't say it like he would say it, but this is what he says. The principle by which God works is that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. We see that principle in Romans 5.20. It is this superabundance of grace and wisdom in God which can make our experiences, look at this, even our rebellion against him serviceable in his hands to equip us for the future. Broken and contrite Jonah was precisely the kind of man that God could use in Nineveh. See, God's grace pursues Jonah, and not only does it bring him back, he transforms him in the process so that his heart is a little less hardened. He's a little less stubborn, and he's now ready to obey the Lord. God came after him with a mighty tempest and a great fish, not merely to bring him back, but to bring about a change in his heart. God in his grace isn't merely interested in getting work out of Jonah. God in his grace is interested in doing a work in Jonah. See, what God intends to do with Jonah, he intends to do through him. And in God's grace, he will even take our rebellion and our running away to bring about our good and transformation. Now, remember when we started this series, we said that the book of Jonah is meant to be a mirror for us, not just a, a story about a guy who lived a long time ago and spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. It's meant to be a mirror for us to look in and to see ourselves. So let's not rush past this moment of self-reflection. See, previously Jonah failed. He gave excuses, he turned from God's will, and he ran away. But God pursued him, not, not to prove a point, but to bring him back and restore him. And maybe you're here this morning and you go, I identify with that Jonah, the running away Jonah. And, you've, and maybe you've started to believe the lie that says there's no way that God will take me back. He may have taken Jonah back, but Clint, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what it's like. God will never take me back. I'm too far gone. There's no hope and there's no redemption story for me. My life wouldn't make your top three list for a sermon introduction. Maybe you've believed the lie that said God can't or won't use me for his will. 
if that's you, I want you to see the example of Jonah and learn that God is a God of mercy and his mercy restores. It's what he does. He delights to do it. Also, look at this promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Look what he says. And we know that for those who love God, all things, if you have your Bible, underline that, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Sinclair Ferguson, again, is helpful. He reminds us that all things must mean everything or it doesn't mean nothing, right? Or it means nothing. All things must mean everything or it means nothing. God's grace is so great that there's no one beyond redemption, that there's nothing that can't be redeemed. So if you think you've run out of chances with God, trust me, where your sin, though it may run deep, his grace runs deeper. His grace superabounds. You can't outsin his grace. You can't. And so today might be the day, it is the day, that like Jonah, you can experience God's mercy that restores. His, his mercy is the kind that brings you back and restores you and does a work of transformation. But not only does God's mercy restore, his mercy redeems. Let's keep going in chapter 3 and verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey and breath. And Jonah began to go out into the city, going in a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3, the author repeatedly tells us how big and great and grand the city of Nineveh is, that it's, that it's vast and it's great, it's, it's big in physical size, it's large in population, and it was known throughout the ancient world for its power and might. And, and the author, I think he, he does that to remind us of, of the situation that Jonah's in. We're, we're meant when we read the Bible to enter into the story, to feel what the characters are feeling. Imagine Jonah as he finally now walks into the city. He's a small fish in a big ocean. He's small and insignificant. Why would anybody listen to him? What would stop him from being arrested by the authorities and executed? Do you think people will take kindly to him coming in and saying, hey, God, my God is about to destroy your city? I mean, what would stop a mob from rioting and taking him and doing away with him? But you see, Jonah's gone through a transformation. Previously, his fear of Nineveh kept him from going, but now... The fear of Nineveh has been reduced to proper size in light of his newfound fear of God. See how that happens? See, the fear of Nineveh, which it crippled Jonah before and produced terror and flight, but now fear of God has overcome the fear of Nineveh, and it's produced action and trust. Nineveh may be big and powerful, but they don't outsize or overpower God. So he's able to go into this um, dangerous and potentially scary situation because he's driven by now this redemptive fear of the Lord. So Jonah goes into the city and he begins to preach. Now at this point, we're not given like a full transcript of his sermon. It's not as if he was just saying that one line as if it were intelligible for people to understand, but this is kind of the way the biblical narratives work. Often we're going to get a summary statement of what's going on. And so here, that's what we have here. It's a summary statement, but what is clear 
is that he's saying, look, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, utterly devastated, unless they repent. Now, if you're paying attention and you're seeing the words, you may be thinking, wait, did I miss something? Where in the text did it say, unless they repent? Because when I read it, I didn't see it there, right? Now, this is where we have to dig into the text and look and ask good questions to figure out all that it's saying. Now, even though the summary statement, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, it doesn't explicitly state the conditional nature of this coming judgment. There's good reason to understand that God is extending an opportunity for mercy if they will repent. So first, consider the timeline, okay? God, in his grace, gives them 40 days to respond. Why would he give them that timeline? Had God determined to destroy the city no matter what? Why wait? Why give them advance notice? Why send a prophet in the very first place, right? Second, consider the verb that Jonah uses. The word that Jonah uses here that we have translated as overthrown actually has a a double meaning. It's like a double-edged sword. See, the word that he's uh, using, we, uh, we translate overthrow, and its primary use does refer to the destruction and overthrowing of a place or a nation. But there's also biblical precedent for this word being used to talk, to talk about the overthrow or the changing of a heart. Here's an example in um, the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. This is God speaking. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. And right there, where we translate it, change of heart, it's the same Hebrew word for overthrow. So what ties these two definitions together is this idea of a dramatic change. See, the destruction of a city is a dramatic change, isn't it? And so is the changing of a heart. I mean, think about your own heart and what it takes to change it when you've got like kind of a settled uh, position on something. It takes an overthrow. It takes something greater to change your mind and your heart about it. And the author of Jonah is a wordsmith. If you really start studying and seeing uh, uh, the author of Jonah in, in very uh, brief and in, in a really short order, uses language masterfully. And so he, he intentionally uses this word that kind of has this double-edged way. Like if you don't repent, you're going to be overthrown. But if you do repent, if you have a change of heart, if your heart is the one that's changing, then there's mercy In 40 days, a dramatic change will take place. Either this great city will crumble and fall, or this most unlikely of people, the hardened, wicked Ninevites, will experience a transformation at the heart and soul level. Third, consider the king's response. Right, We're going to get to his full response in a minute, but in verse 9, the king says this, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, for now it's important that the king, when he heard the full message, saw room in there for repentance in Jonah's message. He seemed to think that there was a possibility that God might relent and show them mercy if they had a change of heart. Finally, consider the pattern of prophecy in Scripture. Now, this is a good example of when you have a passage of scripture where it's not as clear, you go to other passages that it's really clear what's going on, and you take the principle in the clear passage and you apply it 
to the, print, to the passage where it's not so clear. So let's quickly look at Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6 through 10. God's word says this, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, there's that word again, of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, but if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had uh, intended to do to it. See here, in this passage, we have insight into God's purposes through what we call conditional prophecy. Often in the Old Testament, God will give a warning of judgment and promises of blessing that are conditional in nature. So instead of reading these like deterministic, set in stone statements of future events, they're warnings of what will happen without repentance. See, when we read it, it's already happened. But at the time, these were given to them in real time. And so they had these opportunities to respond to the prophecy. They gave uh, warnings of what would happen without repentance and promises of what would happen for continued faithfulness. See, God sends out his word to them in real time, and they're given a chance to respond to his redeeming mercy. One commentator named Daniel Timmer concludes, Taken as a whole, then, Jonah's message is one of severe judgment against heinous sin, but one that nonetheless, albeit implicitly, holds out the possibility that judgment might be delayed, mitigated, or avoided. So here's what happens. Jonah arrives in Nineveh. He preaches this message that would have felt ominous and urgent. It was very clear and direct, and it required a response, right? And that's what we see happening. This isn't one of those FYI emails that you get, you can read it and then delete. This message required a response, right? Sometimes people will say response required in bold to let you know, don't sleep on this email. I need to know what your response is. And implicit in the message, there's this glimmer of hope, the hope that Jonah's God is a God of mercy and compassion, that God in his mercy and grace are giving the Ninevites an opportunity to respond. Through Jonah, God's word has gone out and it will not return void. It will either accomplish, it will accomplish the purpose that it was sent for. It will either accomplish the purpose of, of judgment or it will accomplish the purpose of restoration. Do you see that? Either way, his word goes out and it will accomplish what God intends. Now let's look at verse 5 we'll see the people's response. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And the king issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. These verses in Jonah give an account for how the people of Nineveh respond to this message, message uh, from God. 
To Jonah's great shock and surprise, the Ninevites don't laugh at him. They don't lynch him, but they listen to him. Verse 5 gives a blanket statement and says, The people of Nineveh believed God from the greatest to the least. You see, the way this is written, you get the impression that Jonah um, entered into the city. He started preaching and word began, began to spread like wildfire. The word of God transcended social classes and reached every corner of the city. Another way to say it is his message went viral, right? You know how that can happen? A video or something that was posted and then within 24 hours, it has millions of views. That's what's going on here, pre-social media, His word even reached the king of Nineveh, who himself personally repented and called for a citywide repentance. He trades his throne and his royal robe for ashes and sackcloth. A citywide fast was decreed that people put on sackcloth. Now think about how itchy that would be. Like we're used to wearing these nice clothes with like, you know, these like uh, uh, certain types of of, clothes. fabric threads and everything else that feels good. They put on like burlap, itchy, scratchy. Thing. It, it was meant to, it was, it, these were clothes of mourning. It was meant with every movement to go, yeah, things aren't right. I need, to, I need to, to feel like what's really going on inside of my heart. Even the animals are fasting, right? So that you get this impression that Nineveh in totality is repentant, great and small, king and commoner, man and beast. They acknowledged the wickedness of their sins. They acknowledged that there was violence in their hands. They called sin, sin. They didn't give it some other name like, yeah, we've made some mistakes. We could have done better in some areas. They said, no, our ways have been violent and wicked and evil. They were clear about it. And they called for a turning away from their sin to God. So what could have caused an entire citywide repentance like this? If you look in the history books, you'll see that the Assyrians at this time kept really detailed records of what was going on. And um, commentators have pointed out that during this time, leading up to Jonah's arrival, there was immense political instability. There were plagues. They were, there was famine, and then you add in the year 17, or, or sorry, 763 BC, there was this uh, uh, solar eclipse, and in this kind of culture, they would have seen that as a bad omen. And so you start to get the impression that, jo- uh, that, that the Lord had begun preparing the people with all this instability, with all these omens, with all the, the tragedies that are going on, that the, that the people are probably feeling like something bad is coming. And then Jonah walks into the city the city that God had prepared for his message. See, before Jonah even steps on the scene, God has done the work of pre-evangelism so that they're ready to hear and receive the good news. Now, this is really important because, see, God just tells us to go. He doesn't tell us all that he's doing behind the scenes to prepare people for the message that he has to give them. Or or we don't know what God will do with that message when they receive that. None of that is in our hands. We don't have the ability to prepare people's hearts, nor do we have the ability to make people believe. Like Jonah, our job as ambassadors of good news is simply to go and tell. The preparation and the reception of that message are in God's hands. 
We are a people who go and tell. We don't prepare and we don't make people believe. See, Jonah had received that restorative mercy from God so that he could go and be the messenger of redeeming mercy to the Ninevites. The mercy that God showed Jonah is now extended to the Ninevites. And we're just like him. The mercy that we receive to God, we are called to go and share. Go tell what God has done. We're basically saying, look, this is how God has been merciful and dealt graciously with me. Let me tell you all about him. See, what God does in Jonah, he now starts to do through Jonah. Now, some have wondered and debated, to what degree did the Ninevites actually repent and believe in God? And the simple answer is, we don't know how far down into their hearts this message went. But here's what we know. God does not delight in empty words or mere outward actions. He can't be manipulated. He delights in genuine repentance, and he is able to see the heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul tells us the kind of repentance that God receives. Look what he says. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The way this is written shows that the, that, Nineveh, that the Ninevites believed God and his word to him. They came to a realization of their sin, the depth of it, and their need for redeeming mercy. God used Jonah in his word to illuminate the eyes of their heart so that they, at the same time, truly saw themselves and they truly saw God. They experienced a godly grief over their sin that produced a salvation that led to their salvation. Not merely worldly grief that produces superficial sorrow and is ultimately unable to produce genuine repentance and salvation. And here the way the Ninevites responds is actually a good picture for what it looks like for us to receive God's mercy. We have to believe that God's word is true, that it's actually telling us about who we are and about who he is. We come to see that our sin is worthy of judgment and leads to death. And then like the Ninevites, we turn from our sin and turn to the Lord and beg him for mercy, forgiveness, and grace. None of us can twist God's arm with outward shows. None of us can make God save us. Even our repentance doesn't earn favor and merit from God. It's a gift, 100%. Now, did the Ninevites understand everything about God? Did they have all of their theology worked out? Had they turned away from every false God? Of course not. Were they driven by self-preservation from imminent danger? Absolutely but faith does not require well-laid-out theology and perfect motivations, or else none of us could come to God. Our faith doesn't have to be big, and it certainly doesn't have to be perfect. We aren't saved by the perfection of our faith, but we're saved by the perfection of the Savior who we put our imperfect faith in. See, the Ninevites came to see, maybe their theology was only this deep, that their only hope was in the redeeming mercy of God. And friends, listen to me, that's all it takes. It doesn't have to go much deeper than that. The light of the gospel showed them their sin, but it also showed them that God was a God of mercy and they put their hope and trust in him. Let me ask you, have you? Have you taken God's word seriously? 
Have you seen God's mercy as your only hope of redemption? Have you, like the Ninevites, responded in repentance, this double-edged sword of turning away from your sin and turning towards the Lord? Have you responded in repentance? See, so far we've seen God's mercy, and it's the kind that restores, but it's also the kind that redeems. And you can be redeemed today. All it takes is to see God's mercy as your only hope. Now let's finish this last verse to see that God's mercy is the kind that relents. Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. As we've seen, the people of Nineveh believed God and his word, and they repented of their evil way, and they turned towards the Lord. And they demonstrated that inward repentance with their actions. And the Bible says God saw it. And he relented of the disaster that he promised would come if they didn't repent. See, when people turn from their sin and turn to the Lord with sincere grief, with an earnest desire for mercy, God extends that mercy and grace. Now, again, it's not that we control God. We can't manipulate him in any way, shape, or form. See, God's not like a vending machine. That if you just put the right amount of money in, if you have the right combination of buttons, that you'll get your preferred blessing uh, for the day. But God is a God of abundant mercy and grace. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. In fact, we're gonna, we're gonna see this in Jonah chapter four, but Jonah, we, we, we hear how Jonah responds uh, to what happens and he says, I knew it. I knew you were gonna save them. And you know how I know it? Because you're a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy and you just love extending grace and forgiveness to people, right? He comes at God with that kind of fury. We'll look at it next week. But God, by his very nature, is a God of mercy. And mercy, by its very nature, relents. Now, let's talk about that word. What does it mean to relent? Well, just simply, it means to, to hold back. It means to, to let up, right? I think about those, those times in, in high school and the, the football locker room, and guys would be wrestling, and you'd get some guy pinned down, and you'd make them say mercy until they would get up, right? And when they did, they would, they would let up. See, God has a right to extend justice and judgment to the Ninevites. He's not wrong for doing it, but he chooses to let up, to extend mercy and forgiveness. Now, this word relent has caused a ton of articles and papers and books. It's funny how one word can generate so much literature. People often ask, what does it mean for God to relent? Did it mean that God changed his mind? Is the future open and God is sort of just kind of playing out history on the fly? He's just a little bit ahead of us. Can God be influenced? Does he react to us? Is he going, I'm, I'm kind of waiting. I don't know what I'm going to do. and I'm kind of waiting on you to do it. Does it mean that God is not in control? Of course not. Now there is a very close relationship between human actions and God's response, particularly as we experience them in real time. So we have two perspectives. We have our perspective as we experience life, and then there's this eternal perspective from God. Now, all of us in this room, here's a little philosophy lesson for you, okay? We are temporal beings. We are bound by time. Here's what that means. You experience life as a succession of moments, one moment from the next, right? 
You can just, you, when, you, when someone says, hey, how was your day? You start going, well, it started here, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and then I did this, right? A succession of moments. That's how everybody you've ever met experiences life. One moment to the next. But that is not how God experiences time. Here's why. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He's not bound by time because nothing binds him. We know from other scriptures that God both ordains the means and the ends so that nothing ever is outside of his control. If he didn't have a grip on both the means and the ends, there'd be something open, right? There'd be something that's outside of his control. But God does not react, and he's not governing the world on the fly. He is sovereign, which means he is in complete and total control. We looked at this definition last week, and it's worth repeating again. God's sovereignty, R.C. Sproul tells us, means that he owns what he makes, and he rules what he owns. God knows all things and is all-powerful, which means he is in control, and nothing happens that is outside of his will. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him, we, believers, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We don't have time to go into that whole passage, but what he's saying is our salvation inheritance as sons and daughters of God is not by chance, and it's certainly not by accident. It is, in part, it is all part of the purpose of God who works all things, and I do mean all things, according to the counsel of his will. All things means all things here. So when God takes counsel, when he's wanting to know, hey, how should I organize things? How should I order the world? How should I ordain some things? He doesn't come to you and he doesn't come to me. He takes counsel with himself according to his own will. Here's how it worked in Nineveh with Jonah. God ordained that Jonah would be a prophet to Nineveh. Even Jonah's running away from God served to equip and ready Jonah for the very work that God called him to do so that at the end of his running, he would be ready and equipped to do the very thing that God had called him to do. Then Jonah delivered and preached the word of God. He was clear and direct that without repentance, Nineveh would be destroyed. And God even ordained Nineveh's repentance so that nothing is left to chance. He ordains both the means and the ends. And after they repented, God relented of the disaster that would have come if they hadn't repented. When it says that God relented, that's our experience of what God is doing, not God's experience of what God is doing. God's message goes out and we don't know which way it's going to go. And we are making real decisions in real time Their repentance did not take God by surprise, but happened exactly as he knew it would and exactly as he ordained it would. God brought Jonah to announce judgment so that it would give the people of Nineveh the means and the opportunity to repent. And so that his ultimate purpose, which they didn't know at the time, but his ultimate purpose, but we know because now we are reading scripture, was to extend mercy to them, right? One of the best examples of this tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty we see in the cross of Christ. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 24. Peter is preaching, and he's coming to the end of his sermon, just like I am. And he says this, 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up, don't miss this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you see it there? Peter said that Jesus came with mighty works and signs to show that he was the son of God and he was crucified according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But where does the responsibility of his crucifixion come on? The people who killed him, those who executed him. He said, you crucified him and you killed him. So do we have free will and are humans responsible for our actions? Absolutely, without a doubt. Is God totally and completely in control to do all things uh, and, and do all things work according to his plan? Absolutely, without a doubt. How does our freedom, uh, human freedom and responsibility work alongside with the, freedom, the sovereignty of God? Hear me. I don't know. I don't know. And it's the most biblical answer I can give you. The Bible doesn't say how it fits together. It just says that it does. And the Bible even tells me, this is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. The Bible even tells me there are going to be things I'm not going to understand and things I'm not privy to. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Write this one down. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, that we may do all the words of his law. In his word, God reveals to us that he is sovereign and in control. He also reveals to us that we make real decisions in real time, and we really are held accountable and responsible for them. How that fits together? Secret things of God. He has not, tried, he has not told us how they fit together. You're welcome to try to speculate and try to figure it out, but friends, tell me, you're not going to be able to solve it with, a, with, with, with any kind of definiteness. We are invited, rather, not to endless speculation, but we are invited to trust the Lord's good character and live and sit in the tension. That's where we're called. Instead of knowing how it works, he asks us, will you trust me? Will you trust me when you don't have everything perfectly figured out? And you might be asking, well, how can I know that I can trust him? We can trust God in this tension and with our very lives because he's shown himself to be trustworthy. See, that day in Nineveh, God relented. He turned from his anger and wrath and just judgment and extended mercy. And for all who put their trust and hope in Christ, God will relent as well and extend to you the full force of his mercy and love. And he can do this precisely because there was a day when God did not relent, when God did do what he said he would do. And according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus went to the cross to be the payment price for your sin and mine, to receive the wrath from God for our sin so that all who are repentant could receive mercy. So Jonah chapter three asks us, will you trust God in the tension? Not with every question figured out, but leaning into the character of God, remembering that he's the God of second chances and he is the God of mercy and grace 
so we can trust him. Let's pray.